On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies? We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On today's Complicated Conversation, we are thrilled to have Jessica Knoll with us. Jessica is the New York Times bestselling author of Luckiest Girl Alive and The Favorite Sister. Her books have been published in over 40 languages and sold over a million copies. She adapted Luckiest Girl Alive for the screen and executive produced the movie starring Mila Kunis out now on Netflix. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, we, she lives in Los Angeles with her husband and bulldog Beatrice. Right. Can't forget me. I'm not forget you. No, we never did. Yeah, never, never. Before we get started, just to let everyone know, there will be spoilers for the Luckiest Girl Alive movie. So the movie is a little different from the book. You're going to want to watch it before you listen to this. We want to start with you, or the fact that you are the sole screenwriter on this movie, which is pretty remarkable feat for an author who at the time had no prior screenwriting experience. But I understand from interviews that you were pretty resolute in your ability to be able to do this, but also sort of this idea that you couldn't bear the thought of anyone else doing it. So we wanted to hear more about how you both had the confidence in your abilities, but also the tenacity to insist on adapting this yourself. Yeah. I mean... I think a part of it was at the time that the book was optioned, it was 2015, right before the book actually published, these conversations were happening behind the scenes. So I still hadn't, it would still be another year before I wrote my essay and before I kind of came forward with my story myself. And so I think I probably felt extra protective of the character and of the story because of that. I was trying to like maintain control, but I was also just like really passionate about wanting to kind of diversify in my writing and write a screenplay. It had been something, there had been a couple of years where I was like, maybe that's what I'll be is like a screenwriter. I took a screenwriting class in college. I didn't quite understand how you become a screenwriter. It's the kind of murky path as becoming an author or any kind of writer. There is no one way. And that's what makes it so, I think, like intimidating and impossible to even like start on that journey. Right. You, you go, yeah, rise up step, the step. That yeah. we do in maybe a corporate job. So I just really wanted to do it. Like I thought it would be fun. I thought it would be exciting. I I wasn't done with the story yet. Like I love dialogue. Mm-hmm. Like so beyond the just kind of personal attachments to it, like there was that just like passion as like a creator and a storyteller. Like I, like, I want to do this. And I just have this feeling that if you give me a chance – I can prove to you that I can do it. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing I learned pretty quickly is that they say film is collaborative. And I feel like I've said that so many times at this point that it's like (laughs) just lost all meaning to me, but it's really true. (laughs) 
you get a novel is such a different writing experience like it's mostly just down to you and like your editor at your publisher like does weigh in and like sometimes a lot but it's never super prescriptive Mm. with a screenplay you're getting prescriptive notes from people all the time yeah and an editor is one person for the book but You're getting notes from every facet of the process. And even if you're a seasoned screenwriter, you're still getting them because everybody has a stake, like a a really big stake in this. So part of me is just like, if I have the raw talent and I'm going to be getting notes and I'm going to be kind of guided through this anyway, why can't it be me? And that was kind of how I felt about it. And I think... More people, if you're interested in that, like, should know that. Like, you're not just kind of, like, left to your own devices. They don't even leave you to your own devices when you are a more seasoned screenwriter, which <laughs> right, right. I am a little bit more now. Yeah. yeah. But also, no one's going to hand it to you either. I mean, I think you got to prove yeah. that you are Well, unless you're task. cheap labor, which That's I was. True. <laughs> right. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. Take a crack at it. There is that. <laughs> That's kind of how it happened because initially they were talking about this really big name screenwriter, but her quote was like a million dollars and I didn't have a quote because I'd never written a screenplay before. And mm-hmm. so they can, I mean, not, lo- I don't want to say anyone lowballed me, but like for a studio, it's not that much money. And so, yeah. and it's so commonplace to hire other writers on a project that the way they looked at it was probably like, okay, look, she wants to do it. It's not that much money for us. Yeah. Let her try. And if she does a great job, great. Like we got it for cheap. And if yeah. she is not the one to do it, then we'll just hire someone else. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of risk involved for the studio for to them. let me do it. Yeah. That's yeah. a fair yeah. point. But then I had to, but to stay on it. Right. Yes. That's, yeah. Hit. That I had yeah. to prove myself again and again. Yeah. Again and again. Yeah. Because they will just bring in someone in Hollywood. They just bring in someone to polish it at the end. And then all of a sudden yeah. your name gets relegated to second place or a smaller. Or you just you share know. the credit yeah. or mm-hmm. or you get a director who's also a writer and they're just going to get in there and make it their own anyway. So th- these were all very real possibilities that like happen all the time and are not like terrible things. Like no. sometimes they result in like really great films and projects, but I just didn't want that to happen in this particular case. No, well, we love it because the product, this movie is phenomenal. So it cool. really is. No, it truly is. But I want to go back a little bit, well, to both the book and the, the movie. First of all, the book holds a really special place in Kate and I, in our friendship, and then also in the genesis of this podcast, which is all about celebrating the women that are creating our favorite content. And you created a lot of content here, meaning there's a lot that goes on in this story. I mean, a yeah. wedding, a documentary, multiple rapes, a school shooting, relationships all around, friendship, love. Did you ever wonder when you were looking at the blank page or did anyone ever come to you and say, there's too much going on here? Like, how did you? No, I mean, the no. answer is empirically no. Yeah. yeah. But how did you know it was going to work? I've done a lot of thinking about where that comes from. And I also sometimes feel like a lot of shame as a storyteller for that because I'm like, yeah, like why couldn't I have streamlined it? But I have to remember who I was at the time that I wrote this book. And I was so 
raw about what had happened to me. And I really hadn't talked about it in depth with any, not many people. People in my life knew about it. Friends, my husband, like it wasn't this like secret that I carried, but it wasn't something that like I was comfortable even saying at my readings for like the first year the book came out or to my publishing, my team at Simon & Schuster that like this, some of this is based on my real life. I didn't know how to do that. And I, I know what I was thinking in my head. I think subconsciously I was trying to tell a story where I, this is tricky because I don't want to say <laughs> quote unquote justice was served because by no means is that what happened. But my therapist is like, look, you wrote a book and you wrote the scene of what happened to you. And then the three guys who did that to you have a terrible thing that happened to them. That's not a mistake in your psyche. Like that was some part of you trying to lash out and hurt the people who had hurt you under the guise of fiction. That was all subconscious. I did not know that that's what I was doing. And I think the other thing was, I didn't think that giving her a backstory, and this is, this makes me kind of sad that I didn't think that giving her a backstory about her sexual assault, like I didn't think that was enough to inform the person she had become. I was like, she needs more trauma than that because yeah. like that's part of sexual assault too is like the um, minimizing and the normalizing that goes around it where you're like, well, it's not that, that you know. Thing. Yes, yeah. I feel horrible, but like they were drunk too and maybe it wasn't as like violent as I'm like oh, remembering. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you do yeah. all of that to yourself. So I know I was also doing a version of that. So I think it was like the alchemy of those two things is yes. is how it became the kind of the the two kind of big incidents in the book. Yeah. yeah. But even if uh, that is all really interesting, but I'm surprised to hear that you feel shame about it because I feel like it's textbook good writing is the character informs the plot. Who she, yeah. like what happens to her early on, because the, the rape happens early, it informs everything that happens, the isolation, her getting in with these other people, but also not yeah. really getting in with them. And so when they are involved in the school shooting, you're like, was she or wasn't she? Did Was she the yeah. the last bit? So I, I think from it's textbook, like, do this. <laughs> Thanks. I also have days where I'm like, I think like that too. You know what I mean? It yeah, just depends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you're just like, oh, yeah. Yeah. you have good days, yeah. bad days about whatever it is. Like you're like, yes. yeah, I'm like doing okay. And then the yeah. next day you're like, I don't, Why did I don't I do know. That? Yeah. New York Times doesn't like me. I, of course. course. Yes. We're such sensitive artists. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, so one of the things the novel and the movie explore so well is female rage or anger, yeah. which is something thing we talk about, Corinne and I, a lot on this podcast and just because we find it so relatable. And there's a a part where Ani tells Dean, my anger is like carbon monoxide, odorless, tasteless, and completely toxic, but only to me. I don't take my anger out on anyone other than my fucking self. Mm. And that feels just so true to me that as women, we turn inward, turn our anger inward and and self-loathing. And it makes perfect sense because we're taught not to express it externally. And then we end up, again, like Ani, 
where she calls herself this wind-up doll, right? Turn my key and I'll tell you exactly what you want to hear. And I really feel that because, but it's hard because people respond to the wind-up doll, right? They yeah. like her, okay? Yeah. Whereas when Ani, for example, shows anger, you hear Luke going, oh, you're so angry, I can't talk to you when you're like this. And yeah. that's been my experience, that kind of reaction, the Luke reaction, which is sort of like, calm down. You know, I can't yeah. talk to you when you're like this. You're so angry. So I struggle a lot with, you know, you want to be heard and people listen to the wind-up doll, but you also want to be able to express yourself when you're angry and pissed off. So I, my question, I guess, is about how to reconcile the two and whether exploring, you know, the anger in fiction has sort of helped you figure this out or have any insights on this? Yeah, yeah a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm actually kind of writing something about this right now, an, an essay. I guess the way where I've come out on it through a lot of work in therapy and a lot of self-reflection and a lot of mistakes and getting it wrong before it all finally clicking and then from there, trying to shift my behavior and do actually doing that in a way where you're just like, oh my God, I, I cannot believe I have some mastery over this. And mm. that I also don't feel as angry as I used to. That has been the last like six years of my work in therapy. And I think anger is a good thing and a good tool but it needs to be smart. You need to understand your anger and what it's really about and then direct it and use it in situations that truly call for it as opposed to just being triggered, not understanding what the trigger is about and lashing out at everyone and everything. <laughs> like that's just yeah. sloppy yeah. anger. And that's yes. what I was. I was like a sloppy, angry person because I did not have any sort of mastery of who I was and where I came from and how I was raised and how a lot of things that were contributing to my anger like didn't like I could have gone through high school and not I, I could have not gone to that party that night and what happened to me didn't happen to me and I probably still would have been like a pretty angry person for a lot of other reasons because I was taught to not speak up to not use my voice to be that chameleon where I'm looking at the people around me and anticipating what they need what and they what need. they want and giving it to them and that that takes priority over who I am, what I want and what I need. And then once I realized that, I was like, well, and this is kind of sad. I was like, who am I? I don't yeah. actually yeah. know because I've literally only lived so blindly for all these years as someone who feels so responsible for the people around her, making sure that they feel good. And that, and that in turn, they like me. And that has been at the expense of you. how I really feel, what I really think, and being how to speak up for yourself in situations, like in the moment, in a reasonable way, so that like you're venting that anger 
in a healthy mm-hmm. way rather than like bottling it all up and then like exploding, exploding. because yeah. my husband brought home the wrong coffee order and like turning right. it into this thing where like you know, everything yes. about our marriage. Yes. Oh, right, right. You never right. listen so, to me. You don't know how to take <laughs> yeah, care of me. You never listen. <laughs> yes. Like yeah. we'll yes. do this a million times. And a lot yeah. of that is also just like frustration about needs being unmet young mm-hmm. and and so not learning how to express what they are, not even really knowing what they are. And so you're just frustrated all the time. That's what I felt. My therapist would always call me colicky. It's really tough to hear. It really makes you look at yourself because you're like, I don't want to be colicky, but I'm so, I'm colicky. Why? How do I stop? So yeah. And it's amazing once you start to understand it and change your behavior, you watch people People, it's like a dance and you change, it's like for once you're, you're the lead, you've changed the steps Mm -hmm. and people can catch up to you if they want. And some people have. So much of what you're talking about is reflected in one of the scenes in the movie that isn't in the book where she's on the lawn with Luke towards the end and uh, at their rehearsal dinner. And that just spoke to me so much. He says, I thought you were tough. And he says, I, you used to be fun. And Ani yeah. says, I, I used to be so proud of that. I thought I was this chameleon who was so much smarter than everyone, so much smarter that I didn't even know a thing about myself. That just spoke to me so much. I mean, for me, I, I can't separate a lot of things. What was my personality before I had sexual trauma and then also at, it was at a young age where I was just going through my development as a young woman. And so I can't separate out all of those things, but it just becomes a time when I don't know who I am. Like she says, I don't mm-hmm. even know who I am and what I made up to make other people like me. And by the way, I've done that. And I've also done the opposite, just do things to make people hate me so that yeah. I don't, I don't have to go through all of that. So that scene was really, was really brilliant. Thank really you. Spoke to Thank me. you. I was proud of that line. Good. <laughs> it was a hard one it, line in life. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then it gets into, you have discussed that after you wrote the, the essay for Lenny Letter, that you were inundated with messages from women sharing their stories with you and that that unlocked something in you that allowed you to sort of reshape or recreate this ending. And I have to tell you the result to me is just so uplifting. I mean, it gave me chills when all those women, different women were were speaking in their own voice and sharing their stories. I mean, there are their own individual stories, but there's this connectedness. And I just, we'd love to hear more about your decision to to pull from your own experiences post-publication of your book and infuse it into this ending of the movie. Yeah, it really came from just those like marathon notes calls that we would find ourselves Mm. on with our producers and our director. And then Mila, once she came on board and was one of our creative producers too. And at the time that the, that Mila had received the script and was interested, she didn't like the ending. And she was like, we we have to figure out something else. And I think we were all, everyone who had been on it up until that point had been on it, some of them since the very beginning in 2015 when it was optioned, like some of our producers. Our director came on in 2018. So like we had been 
even our new executive at Netflix was our executive from Lionsgate. She left Lionsgate, went to Netflix and was like, I'm bringing Luckiest Girl Alive with me. So Mila came on and she's talking to people who have been on this project between four and seven years at this point. She was so helpful to have a fresh set of eyes because it was like what we knew was like, we haven't landed the ending, but we can't figure out how to do that. And Mila was very interested in what happened in your real life. Well, I wrote this essay and I got all these messages from women. And like at a certain point, I think we all, we all realized that the hearing from other women was a big part of the story that we needed to include because it became about something that was even bigger than her. And that felt very big and cinematic. (laughs) And you added well, that line, the women will be fine, right? When she's first. The women will be, yeah. Yes. The women will be fine because I think that was also meant to show in the movie. It's like she decides, hopefully in the book, she decides to do the documentary and that is her freedom from Luke. Yeah. Now I can do the documentary without any kind of baggage and worrying what he has to think. In the movie, we felt like, if she does the documentary, then like the victory still kind of somehow goes to the documentarian and that the, mm. the real the real win would be her using her own voice yes. and talking about this in her own way. Although the director was well-intentioned, that it wasn't going to be her voice. It wasn't going to be her version of things. And then mm-hmm. the kind of just the kicker of him not getting it was the Oof, think about yeah. all the women you're going to help. And it's kind yeah. of fuck you, dude. Yeah. Like, I, that's just something I you're like, saying. That's just yeah. not only is that something you're saying, but I just chafe at the idea that women have to constantly think about everyone else around them. Give me one fucking minute to like process this for myself. Yes. It's literally that thing when you're on an airplane, and there's a crash. You have to put on your own air mask first before you can help anyone out. Yeah. Out anyone yes. else out. Like, yes. cause you can't help anyone else if you, if you can't breathe. <laughs> yes. breathe. So yes. you have to breathe on your own first and then you can help other breathe. I've met you at two book events and we've had wonderful conversations about Bravo. But both times I met you, I did not have the courage to say thank you, which is something I really wanted to do. Not just for your Lenny letter, which I will literally never forget exactly where I was at working at UBS on a trading floor. I had to get up and go to the bathroom to cry. And, but not only for that, really, it goes way beyond that. It's just the way you live your life. I think that anyone who has experience with trauma is afraid that it's going to take over your whole life if you let it out of the cage. If you say something that it will only be what people see. And I love everything, all of your content, your writing, your Beatrice, your cooking, your Bravo TV, all of it is just amazing. And I've really confronted a lot of my own limiting beliefs about my own experiences, and I can't thank you enough for that. That's amazing. That was really beautifully said. And I loved what you said about Mm -hmm. letting it out of the cage. Like it'll be this thing that consumes you and defines you. That's a really poignant way of saying it. So thank you. I really appreciate that. So I love that ending, and I love that you brought that feeling of healing and growth to it. But then there's the end end, which I love yeah. even more. And oh, I God. saw that oh, it's 
Oh, we're going to talk about it because I, I <laughs> but we saw Mila promoting the movie and she said that it was polarizing. I need to understand yeah. this because yeah. I can't imagine the movie ending any other way. So wait, Seth, let me set the scene. Ani's looking directly into the camera at the Today Show. Like tears are coming down my eyes because she's like telling us we need to tell our stories and be free. And the host is still saying like, thank you. That was great. And the mic is off her collar, right? That's how it feels sometimes. Like, okay, you speak out, but we have to move on. (laughs) We have to get on with this. And now you are just left to actually live your life after carrying this. this. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. As you always have been. And now it's a little different, but still kind of feeling maybe alone with it. And so she walks outside to Fifth Avenue and and a woman comes up to her and says, basically, Dean was doing more than you'll probably do. And she says, she says to her, oh, I forgot your name. I'd like to keep in touch with you, but I forgot your name. And oh, don't bother. I'll just always remember you as the woman who I told to go fuck herself on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> oh, first of all, that was so great. But then back to her inner monologue, which just brings us yeah. through the whole movie. Got to work on the delivery finale, but fuck, finale. that felt good. Felt oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I was cheering. So cheering. I love to hear that. I'm so glad. I hoped that would be the reaction. Yeah. And I hope that like also it was like true to our character who's like, look, what happens to the TV show is absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And – That happened to me in real life and it was beautiful, but that's not real life. And this is a character who has all her edges and is like a bitch sometimes and it's like fun and funny. And so like, let's still be true to that. And I think when I started getting better about speaking up and advocating for myself in a moment where someone hurt me, instead of just kind of playing nice because initially she says to the woman nice to meet you like she does do that deferential like okay because the woman is a a journalist at another publication you can tell she doesn't she wants to play nice and whatever even though the woman said something really cruel to her so I can remember really clearly one time standing up for myself and at the end of it it was over like a text it was in a text conversation with someone and at the end of it the person said to me I get it you don't have to keep throwing me up against the wall and I screenshot it and then I read it in my next therapy session and I was like I don't understand like I feel like I'm still doing it wrong like in the past I would have just not said anything but then I said something and it's apparently too much and she's like that's that it takes practice. She was like, you're Mm. not going to get it perfectly. You'll get better at it the more you do it. And she's like, yeah, you kept throwing that person up against the wall, but that's, and you can go back and apologize for that and say that you're trying to be better about saying what you really feel and how things make you feel in the moment. And like, you're still rusty at it. And so that, what she says to that woman is meant to kind of show like, okay, I'm going to start trying to speak up for myself in the moment. It's not going to be perfect at first. I'm going to have to work on that delivery. But like (laughs) little part of me, like petty part of me, like, yeah, that fucking felt good. So it's meant to convey that like we're not wrapping everything up in a perfect bow, but she's on her way to, I don't want to say to like being a better person, but I think just being a more authentic person and and knowing who she is. I think that perfectly conveyed that. 
And that's not how it works. And I love it. You have to have an arc. You have to have a change by the end. But that little thing is just a reminder. She's still Ani Finelli, (laughs) Tiffany Finelli. That's right. That's right. And another thing that she realizes sort of at the, by the end is that the appearance of living well is not the same thing as actually living well. And I want to talk about this great line in the movie about the approximation of honesty. Oh, Lolo. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about Jennifer Beals, please. I know. Every outfit she wears, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like she (laughs) is like, she can wear anything. Yeah. It just kills it. So that was another very relatable line for us. Again, I just sort of know so many women personally who appear to be quote unquote living well, but really aren't living and expressing their full truth, whatever that may be. And when Lolo says this, I mean, she's basically telling her to stop protecting others with these half truths, like write like no one else will read it, say what you want, not what anyone else wants. And she's giving her writing advice in the scene. But I mean, I felt it deeply as life advice. Yeah. And I think Ani does, too, in the end. So I was curious where this particular insight or wisdom comes from. I mean, did someone in real life give you advice like that, that you fictionalized? Or maybe are you Lolo giving yourself advice? Yeah, I might I, be Lolo giving my, myself advice. Because Stephen King in his writing guide slash memoir on writing says that when you're working on something new, you should write with the door closed. And like what that means is like, literally you're writing like no one's ever going to actually read it and Mm -hmm. you give yourself the freedom for it to be bad or messy or potentially even offensive to people in your life for whatever reason but you're just writing it for yourself and you get it on the page that way and then you can kind of step back and be like okay I can calibrate it or I can disguise this character in this way. I know that that's what I was doing when I wrote the book, Luckiest Girl Alive, because it was so, the idea of the book being out in the world and the idea of anyone eventually finding out that parts of me were in it and parts of people in my life were in it was still, was so abstract to me. At 6.30 in the morning in the year 2013, just trying to get an hour of writing in before going yeah. off to my day job at Cosmopolitan. Yeah. Like, it was my first rodeo. So, like, I hoped for the book to be out there and for people to – but you're just not – it's just you can't really fully yeah. comprehend it that first time around. So the double-edged sword of success and of eyes being on what you write, which is, I think, what a lot of writers do hope for. Like, you want your work to connect with people, for people to read what you did. That's – such a treasure and a gift if to get that for me at least but the flip side of that is that you're also you can't fully protect yourself from other people's opinions and criticisms and I have a whole new appreciation for that sex in the city episode where Carrie's dating Berger and he she makes that comment about his new book. Like, I loved every bit of it, but the scrunchie. And she's, like, harping on the scrunchie about how, like, no woman would have a scrunchie, which is so funny because, like, then years later, like, scrunchies came back That's in a big way. Yeah. Yep. As an yeah. aside. Yeah. But I have a whole new appreciation for that because it's, like, people do that to you a lot. Like, they're, like, 
oh, I absolutely loved this, but like, I did notice this one thing. It just, and no one is trying to be an asshole, but you take it all in and then it becomes, the door is wide open and it's really hard to close it the next time you sit down to write because eyes are going to be on it. So I was trying to, I understood that advice on a whole new level once I had had the experience of writing with both the door closed and then with the door open. And I knew that, what I had produced with Luckiest Girl Alive and writing with the door closed, like, is, like, is some of my strongest work, is my work that people really connect to because I really wrote it from a, a like, a pure place. Leads me yeah. perfectly to voice because, first of all, yeah. Mila Kunis, when she's promoting this, has, in every interview almost, has been like, I loved Jess's voice. And Bruna mm-hmm. has said that it, your voice was so original and it stayed with you long after she read the book. Of course, we know Lolo also tells Ani, your voice is simply peerless and we yeah. couldn't agree more. <laughs> How did you find your writing voice? Put aside what happened to you, whatever bits of truth you brought to the book, that has nothing to do with voice. How did you find yeah. that voice? And have you ever lost it? And how do you keep it sharp? Yeah, I definitely found it the first time around with Luckiest Girl Alive by reading. And I feel like Gillian Flynn was my, oh, some people say like, that was my sexual awakening. Like that's when I knew I was gay or straight or whatever. And, but for me it was, oh, that's what it means to have a voice. Her first book I read was actually her second book, Dark Places. And then I became very hungry to read books that were very voicey. And so then I discovered She's Come Undone by Wally Lamb. And I loved the voice of Dolores, the main character. I read The Bell Jar for the first time. Like I never read The Bell Jar like in high school or college. It was like never assigned. And I was like home for Thanksgiving one year and I was looking at my parents' bookshelves. And I think I said, remarked that. My mom was like, are you kidding me? Sit down and read it right now. And I I read it like it was a thriller. I gobbled it up. It was unputdownable to me. And like Astor's voice is like, voice to me. So I I started seeking out that kind of character and writing. I think that helped me find my own when I finally sat down. But do you also think it comes from, you just mentioned Gillian Flynn, who came from magazines and you came from magazines. And I can remember the first time anyone told me I had such a strong voice. It was in the par- I wrote for parenting. Koa Beck, Koa Beck was my editor, and she was the one who told me. Oh yeah, Koa was at parenting. Yeah, she was editor in chief of Mommyish, but she was the first person to say you have a strong voice. I think it's never just one thing. Reading with an eye to what is it that gets my attention that makes yeah. me want to keep reading, and then. And then I think in combination with encouragement from people, like I certainly heard growing up, like you're a really strong writer and you should apply for this award or this writing scholarship, whatever. And then things like that, they build your confidence. You need those moments of building your confidence um, because it's really, it's really daunting to put yourself out there and also to create something like from nothing. That's a really heavy lift. So I think I also have to give credit to the people who encouraged me along the way because I just don't think that I would have had the confidence as a writer to to even attempt to write a book if I didn't also have that that kind of support. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, you have to collect those little little yeah. victories because there's not yeah. a lot on the way to especially publishing those a novel. It's a long yeah <laughs> as adults. Exactly. <laughs> so Kate, do we want to talk about astrology? What? Oh my yeah, yeah. <laughs> we so have yeah, to. we always talk about astrology on this podcast. And you had an Instagram post where you had said that an astrologer once told you that a union between a Sag, which is you, and a Gemini, yeah. your husband, would produce world domination. Clearly, on your way. <laughs> we love check, check. Yeah, we loved hearing that. Not only because I am also married to a Gemini, or because Kate and I are both fire signs. I'm an oh, Aries. Nice. She's a Leo. Yeah, we got the trifecta here. But we, <laughs> so we just wanted to know: Did you meet with an astrologer? Are you interested in astrology? Oh, so astrology actually came from my Cosmo days because okay. we had the astrology column in the back of the book. The back we call it the book. It was like kind of the bane of my existence, only because you had to. It was a spacing thing. And we had an astrologer. So she would turn in each sign and like what was in the cards for you that month. And I would literally have like 3.2 lines for like each (laughs) sign to like jam it all in there. So one time the astrologer came into the office and did charts for me (gasps) and the top editor who I passed the copy to after I'd done it. And that's when she told me about the Sagittarius and Gemini thing. But strangely enough, I'm really not. Sometimes I also read stuff about Sagittarius and I'm like, yeah, that's me. And then I read other things and I'm like, I don't relate to that at all. And then people are like, well, what's the exact time of your birth? Because yeah. that means yeah. you have this moon and whatever. And I'm like, this is too complicated for me. Like, I just can't. I can't get into it. It is a lot. It really is. There's a lot yeah. going on. I'm free-spirited and very independent. I'm like, yeah, that's very Sagittarius. And then the the kind of coupling part, I was like, that's very interesting and that's fun. That's like a little party yeah. trick I can pull out. But that's about mm-hmm. as far as I go with it. Well, <laughs> let me tell you one thing. I looked up a couple of your things without knowing your birth information. Yeah. Just, you have Capricorn in your – and that's a lot of hardworking, success, mm. ambition, money. Yeah. That's – really but how do embedded. I have Capricorn if I'm a Sagittarius this is where it's I your, start it's your her. moon it your moon <laughs> sign I know that's your inside yeah but okay. your chart is there's a lot more than just your sun sign it's, is the point okay, so when people it. say to you they need your time of birth or when you say well I don't really relate to SAG your yeah. woo-woo astrology friends are yeah, basically yeah, trying yeah. to tell you that there's, there's a so whole much bunch more. more in your chart yeah. <laughs> and, and right and if you so if you just knew more you'd know more about why some of these yeah. things fit more than others. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. Corinne is saying your moon sign, which is what your insides are, you're like your feelings oh. is Capricorn, which does okay. suit you well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Right. Makes sense. Right. Makes sense. But it is a lot. It I is. It. it is. Yeah. But you're in LA. I mean. I know. Yeah. I know. You not have to get into it. I, yeah. It's like I'm the last person in LA who like doesn't know anything about astrology. And I know that you're friendly with Rebecca Searle, who's, she's actually the one who got, I went to her astrologer. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so bad. Oh my God. Rebecca is so into all that woo woo stuff. And I'm like, what? She was just telling me the other day how like, she doesn't want like, she's now has like, lost the taste for shopping for like clothes and stuff and she's like what I want is like a lab like once these like red lights and sauna and like telling me all the and I'm like what are these things like (laughs) oh my gosh I'm like still eating wonder bread like I don't know (laughs) 
<laughs> no woo woo. No, no, LA has not yeah, gotten a little that bit far. Of woo-woo. A little bit of woo woo. A little bit. Enough. Enough. Yeah. Always room for more woo woo. Real quick, Paige and Craig, yes or no? I am going to lean toward yes. She bugged me a little in the last season of Summer House because I am a Lindsay fan and I felt like they were all I know that I feel like that's very controversial I freaking love Lindsay like I'm like I I love her what it is she's a Leo I have have such a soft spot for her I'm like I get it like she I call her my little bull in a china shop I just love her so much and I felt like the girls were like being really ageist towards her and I also felt like there was a Mm. lot of you saw the age difference there where I was yeah, like, yes, I just felt like Lindsay was like, guys, when you get to your mid thirties, you're going to get it. But like, I can't deal with you because you're still like in your twenties and like, that's fine. So I felt like, kind of protective of her. So but, are you um, happy about pay- and then Carl and Lindsay big development? Yeah, sure. You know, yeah. I'm actually probably feel more connected to the idea of Craig and Paige because seeing them on Southern charm together, I really yeah. like them. And I also yes. think that you can tell Craig has been therapized a little, which I like. Yes. Because I sometimes he says things that I'm like, oh, you're doing, you're in therapy and you you have some self-awareness right now. And like, you're, you still have moments where I'm like, yes. you know, he's practicing, think, he's practicing he's showing a lot of growth. Yeah. And I don't know. And he just has that like cute little smile. And I just feel like, I don't know. My Craigie, yes. I love him. I'm, I'm with you there. I'm with you there. I'm I'm happy about him building his boundaries, but also running amok sometimes. Like, yeah. oh, sometimes still working. He's, he's, he is too quick to like be the victim, but I'm also like, I've been there too. Also, he's, he's with he's Shep in Austin all the time. Yeah, I know. That's hard. Shep is a monster. But 100%. I also just think Paige is so beautiful and I love looking at her. I like that she's very natural. And so I like the how they look as a couple. Like they're I'm just like, I like watching you guys. Like you're pretty oh people and like you're cute together. So yeah. obsessed. Oh, yes. God, <laughs> wow. Our, like our time is up. The subtitle of this should be um Bravo and Bulldogs. Because if, if oh my given God. The time we could just talk those, both of those topics. So much alliteration time. to play with between Beatrice and Izzy and oh my God. Exactly. So but thank you so yes, much. Thank Jessica. you. This is just essentially like made our lives so thank you thank you ladies all right right, thank thank you yes see you on the other side (laughs) okay bye bye this has been pop fiction women with corinne and kate if you enjoyed this show please tell the complicated women in your life and the men who love them yes tell them to listen and then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.